Lord, we thank you so much for the revelation of your word and for the privilege that we have to have it in our hands and to be able to study it and to be able to, to learn from you. And Lord, as we go through this book and we see you on display and we see uh, what you have come to do, Lord, we, we get to know you better. We get to understand the impact of what the gospel really is. And so, Lord, this morning, would you help us to humble ourselves before your word? And would you allow me as your messenger to simply reflect your truth to the hearts of your people that we would grow and become more like your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, there may be someone here that doesn't know you this morning, and we just ask that your, your word would have its effect, that your Holy Spirit would have freedom to bring conversion, regeneration, as well as, Lord, to encourage those who are your children. We ask this now in your name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. This is a very familiar passage of Scripture, isn't it? You've probably heard this story uh, taught or preached on many occasions. Um, but uh, sometimes it's taught and it's, it's preached just focusing really on the front end of things about, you know, what do you need to do in order to get people to Christ? And certainly there's an aspect of that. But one of the things I think is, is helpful for us is to actually see the bigger picture of what's going on. Um, Mark is laying out a story for us. He's laying out a paradigm for us so that we can seek to understand who Jesus is in better light. Now, in today's confused and liberal, slanted culture, to say that you're a committed Christian is tantamount to saying that you are a sexist, a racist, uh, an ignorant an unthinking person that is full of hatred for your fellow man. I mean, that's, if you watch the TV talk shows, stuff like that, that's, that's what they're described as. That's, that's what they think of people like you and me. So to many, you are an oppressor of people's freedoms and part of the blind that is simply following the blind rules of man-made religion. Or to others, you're control freaks who simply want everything to be rained on and, and, and the Bible is thumped so that you, can, you just can't do what you want to do and have fun in life at all. Uh, or uh, to some, you're an old-fashioned nuisance. and They just assume you disappear and your religion goes away. And we're certainly feeling a lot more of that in our culture today, aren't we? There certainly is this, this move against... Um, true biblical Christianity. Here's how Mary Eberstadt describes this whole phenomenon in an article in Time Magazine about a year ago, in June 2016. And this is what she says, the, the, the title of it is Regular Christians Are No Longer Welcome in American Culture. It's a pretty bold title for Time Magazine, think about it. Here's what she says, a vigorous secularism has catapulted mockery of Christianity and other forms of religious traditionalism into the mainstream and set a new low for what counts as civil criticism of people's most cherished beliefs. And she continues with some examples. Some of the faithful have paid unexpected prices for their beliefs lately. The teacher in New Jersey suspended for giving a student a Bible. The football coach in Washington placed on leave for saying a prayer on the field at the end of a game. The fire chief in Atlanta fired for self-publishing a book defending Christian moral teaching. 
the Marine court-martialed for pasting a Bible verse above her desk. And other examples of new tolerance, anti-Christian activists hurl smears like bigot and hater at Americans who hold traditional beliefs about marriage and accuse anti-abortion Christians of waging a supposed war on women. She continues, some Christian institutions face pressure to conform to secularist ideology or else. Flagship evangelical schools like Gordon College in Massachusetts and King's College in New York have had their accreditation questioned. Some secularists argue that Christian schools don't deserve accreditation, period. Activists have targeted homeschooling for being a Christian thing, and atheist Richard Dawkins and others have even called it, talking about homeschooling, tantamount to child abuse. Student groups like University have been kicked off campuses. Christian charities, including adoption agencies, crisis pregnancy centers, have become objects of attack. Now friends, this kind of persecution that she is talking about doesn't compare to the the horrors of of an ISIS-led genocide against Christians in the Middle East, but it is better understood as the polite persecution of believers in the West. It is persecution. And it is a demonstration of the opposition that is present in our culture against Christ and in, uh, against the gospel. So in likelihood, there are many people that you are acquainted with who are not followers of Christ, who are simply politely enduring you and your ideas. Because the culture has ingrained in them these people really are the kind of people that we would just as soon do without because of what they believe, because of what they hold to. Now friends, none of this should really shock us. This is not new. Opposition to Christ and his gospel is nothing new at all. Christians have been persecuted for over 2,000 years. And of course, they've been persecuted around the world. It's just that in our present culture, in the Western culture, This is kind of a a relatively new phenomenon. And we are kind of struggling with it because we're actually used to a very comfortable form of Christianity. Now, if we're students of the Bible, we realize that it is exactly what Christ and his apostles told us would happen for those who are followers of Christ and for his church in general. Here's what Jesus says to his disciples. I'm reading John 15, 18, and 19. Here's what it says. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. And then the apostles also, the apostle John, 1 John 3.13, again, just reiterates that. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. Now, friends, it's a good, encouraging word, isn't it? But this is the reality. And we, we want to be honest with the reality and say, well, why am I even bringing this up? See, as we come to our text today, it is Mark's first report of opposition to Christ. 
He's been doing lots of things. He's been preaching the gospel. He has been actively at work healing people and casting out demons and teaching and preaching where he went. The news has gotten out about him. He's a popular guy around Galilee. He's a miracle worker, and people are flooding to find him. But now, opposition creeps in. And it's the beginning of what will be a growing antagonism and hateful plotting against Christ and his followers. But the the sad reality is, this is not coming from the Gentiles of the world. This is gonna be coming from the religious elite of the world at that point in time. In other words, those who should know better. And here's why. That religious leadership of that day had in their hands, and I might say because of the discipline of much of that religious elite, had it in their heads, the very scriptures that declare the coming of a Messiah. They should have known. They should have seen this, this, this need for a Messiah to come and what he truly would be like. In those Old Testament scriptures, God and his messianic plan is revealed. One of my favorite texts of scripture is Luke 24. Jesus on the road to Emmaus and he he comes upon two disciples who are distraught over the fact that their Messiah has been taken out of this world. Their, Their master is gone. And as they're journeying together, he begins to just point about this Messiah. Now he knows it's him. They don't know it's him, but he's pointing out through the law, the Psalms, and the prophets that Jesus is predicted, that he is present, he is spoken of. In fact, he reveals himself, they go back to the other disciples and they say about that encounter, did not our hearts burn within us? In other words, in the pages of the Old Testament, Jesus Christ is proclaimed, he's declared, he is revealed, the messianic plan is on display for those who have eyes to see. The problem is, the religious leadership didn't have spiritual eyes to see. So now, as we turn to our text, we'll see this. We'll see that in the face of critical skepticism, Mark calls on us to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ who has authority to forgive sins. Now I wanna say this a little differently. Although this text introduces this critical and skeptical, um, skeptical opposition to Christ, we see in it that Jesus, the Son of God, is the Son of Man and has authority to forgive sins. See, at the end there he says, so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins, I'm gonna tell this man to get up, take your bed, and walk. What's going on here? This title, the Son of Man, is is a title that is Jesus' favorite title talking about himself. Now, what does it mean? 
I think naturally we think, okay, son of man. There's son of God, there's son of man. So son of God is talking about Jesus' divinity, and son of man is talking about his humanity. But that would be missing the actual argument and the point of what that title is. Now think about who he's speaking to in this particular context. The title son of man actually comes from the Old Testament. It comes from the book of Daniel. And in Daniel chapter 7 in particular, um, this is what we find. The Son of Man is appearing uh, in a vision of heaven. He's presented before the throne of the Ancient of Days. And in verse 14 of Daniel 7, it says this, that this, that this Son of Man, um, this dominion and glory uh, and a kingdom that all the people, nations, and languages should serve him his dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away in his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. In other words, the Ancient of Days is saying, this is what the Son of Man is going to be doing. So let me summarize it this way, put it up on the screen. The Son of Man is a heavenly being who will descend to earth to exercise the role of supreme judge. Now think about this. Jesus is saying to these religious leaders, I'm gonna show you this miracle to, to, to tell you, to show you, to reveal to you that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins. In other words, Jesus is saying, I am this guy. I am this one who is sent from heaven to the earth to be this supreme judge. Now, Jesus himself in John 3.16, th- sorry, John 3 and verse 13, right before 3.16, obviously very famous text, but you read a few verses before, here's what he says. No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. So the Son of Man descended from heaven, lived on this earth, is revealed as the Son of God, come as a servant, come as a savior, went to a cross, died, and ascends into heaven. That is Jesus himself. You see how powerful and how rooted in the Old Testament kind of picture what Jesus is saying here uh, is all about. Now let's just consider the setting. The setting here. Let's read verses one and two and just consider what's happening in this context. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. I mean, just three things that just are clearly right there. Jesus is back in Capernaum. Remember, he left Capernaum, why? Because all they wanted was a miracle worker. So he said to his, his disciples, let's go to the other villages, because you know, I've come here to preach. That's what I've come here to do. And of course, the preaching didn't negate his compassionate care for people's diseases and struggles, but the priority was going to be the preaching. But then we have this mass of people. We saw that before, right? Remember, they were at the, the house of Simon Peter and his brother. And this mass of people were there, and Jesus labored all night, healing the people and casting out demons. So again, this mass of people is present, but Jesus now is doing what he was called to do. This is what he came to be about, was to preach the good news of the gospel of God. 
And there's this, this charged atmosphere. There's this, this anticipation that something big is about to happen. In Luke's account, this is what he says, and the power of the Lord was with him to heal, as he's introducing the story. So in other words, there's an expectation, there's this understanding that with all of this, this, this setting and this scenario taking place, something great is about to happen. You just knew something was going to happen. You just didn't know what, and you just didn't know when. So here we find him at home, and he's teaching. Now consider also who is part of the audience that he's speaking to. Oh, I don't have that there. You have the four disciples that are with him, who are learning, who are observing all this. You have the crowds, and probably some of the crowds are people that have themselves either been healed, been delivered, or know someone that has. So the news of him in Capernaum has gone around. Then you have the religious leadership, the scribes is how they're described here in Mark's gospel, this religious elite. Now, why are they there? They're described as sitting there. They're, they're there observing. Here comes this miracle worker. He's causing quite a stir in our town, and so we want to know exactly what he's doing. So you don't know that they're necessarily sitting there as uh, willful participants, but more kind of cautious observers. And then, of course, you have Christ. And there he is teaching the word. And while Jesus is teaching in a home, jam-packed with people, with excitement and tension filling the air, something is happening outside. And here's where Mark begins, and he wants us to see, first of all, what I'm calling man's total inability. Man's total inability. Verse three, and they came bringing him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. So first, as we look at this section of man's total inability, I, I want us to see man's dire condition. Here is a man who is described as a paralytic. He's confined to a bed. He is lying down. He cannot stand. He cannot walk. He is totally dependent on others. And like the other miracles that Mark has recorded and uh, uh, that Jesus performed, This is a picture of mankind in need of salvation. And the healing is a picture of Christ's saving work. We've already seen man in his pathetic frailty, where he is demon-possessed, or he is subject to disease, or as J.D. spoke about last week, he is defiled throughout with this leprosy. These are all wonderful pictures describing man's condition and their need of God's healing touch, which is not a physical thing, it is a spiritual reality. But now we see him in his pathetic inability. He cannot stand, he cannot walk, he is totally dependent on others. Now, this actually is... Some people consider this to be a picture of what Christianity really is all about. They say that this is a picture of of, of Christians because they they see that that God is a crutch 
for those who are weak and for those who are disabled. Now, for anyone who actually knows the Bible, even, even in a, a very simple way, this is an extremely offensive statement. Let me tell you why. It's not because it's true. And it's, it's not because it goes too far. It's offensive because it doesn't go far enough. Man doesn't need a crutch. That would mean that man can do something. Someone who is on crutches can get around a little bit for themselves. They just need some assistance. But the teaching of Scripture is not that you and I need assistance. The teaching of Scripture is that we need complete regeneration. And so this picture here is a man not who needs assistance, but he is unable to stand. He's unable to walk. He is a picture of this spiritual inability before God. And this is man's basic problem. Man didn't need a crutch. He needs a resurrection. And friends, we need this kind of clarity afresh in the church today. This man is totally unable and incapable of coming to God or saving himself. His very nature won't allow it. He doesn't need assistance. He doesn't need advice. And it's not influence that he needs, it's regeneration that he needs. Now likely what this man was experiencing was uh, cerebral palsy, or something along those lines that was a mostly irreversible kind of untreatable disease. And it's the kind of condition that this man had. And and what Jesus says to him must have shocked everyone. What does he ultimately say? Get up, take your bed, and go home. A threefold impossibility for this man in his condition. So this man has a dire condition. But notice, secondly here, this man's friends. He has some faithful friends. The news of Jesus' healing and the fact that he was back in town caused a stir in the the people, and now they arrive at the home, and we don't know who this paralytic is, and we actually don't even know who these four men are. We call them friends, but the text doesn't necessarily say that. I think it's the nature of the fact of what they're doing. You're saying they have to have some kind of a a friendship or a compassion for him, right? Luke calls them some men. Mark simply says four men. Now, you guys have heard of the famous preacher from England by, by the name of Charles Haddon Spurgeon. And his conversion story is really interesting because he was 16 years old. It was a stormy night, and he was he was lost, but he he found his way in the, the town of Colchester. And he went into a primitive Methodist church and he records that some man preached and told him to look to Jesus Christ and be saved. But he doesn't know who that man is. But he's some man. He's some person who knew the truth of the gospel was the answer that this man needed. I remember when I was young, 12 years old or so, we, we came to California for vacation. I remember going to church, and you have to understand, I was a total, thorough pagan at that point in time. My parents were Christians. 
um, and we went to church on a Sunday, but I remember being in that church service and I remember the pastor preaching and I remember the, the phenomenon of the Holy Spirit going right at my heart and just tugging and tugging. And I'm like, what is going on here? But I knew that, that God was speaking to me at that point in time and I resisted and I resisted and I resisted. And I don't even remember who the pastor was. And I wasn't saved that day be another two, three years before I would bow the knee to Christ. But I remember that occasion as one of the, I want to say, milestones in the progress of me humbling myself before Christ. I don't know who that pastor was, but I know that God was speaking to me through him. And so God is in the business, friends, of using anonymous men and women who know something of the living power of Jesus Christ. Now concerning these friends, We're not told how it all began. What did they know? Well, likely, they know this, and I'm pulling this really from the last account, that Jesus was able to heal him, because he had been healing in town, the news had gotten out. And not only that, based on the conversation with um, the man who who had leprosy, he was willing to heal, right? But the fact also is that Jesus is at home. So he's able, he's willing, and he's at home. We're going to do what we can to, to bring this guy to Jesus. And we know, friends, that Jesus is still present with us today. He is alive and sitting in, in complete control on his throne in heaven. But he is also here with us today. We've been worshiping him this morning as Chris was articulating the importance of what we were doing. He was pointing to the fact that Jesus Christ is worthy of our worship. And we sang some songs rooted in, in biblical truth that we're giving praise to him for who he is. He is there in heaven, but he is practically also with us right now here as we are gathered together. And he's still able, and he's still willing, and he is also here to heal our souls. And these friends knew that Jesus was able and willing and in town, and so they're determined to get this, this man, this paralyzed man to Jesus. And they are, their, their actions are described as being faithful, talks about when Jesus saw their faith. I just think it's helpful for us at least to understand their faith was not in the Messiah, but their faith was in a miracle worker at that point in time. That's not a new revelation. This is what everyone was doing as they were coming to Jesus at that point in time. The miracle workers in town, people are getting healed. They're seeing their neighbor. He went over there and he was suffering and and this miracle worker healed him. Oh, we want to get him there. So this is, not a, this is not putting faith in the Messiah for salvation. This is putting faith in a miracle worker to heal physically, okay? But they still exercise faith. And there's just a few things here to learn. It was a compassionate faith. It was no small thing to pick up a man and carry him all over town. And I'm certain they, they had great compassion on him. You guys, you know, all heard about the, the tragedy that happened in Manchester, England, right? One of, the, one of the, the, the good stories in the darkness of that tragedy that came out um, was a, a young man, i say a young man, probably about 30 years old, by the name of Stephen Jones. Um, you know, 22 people were ultimately killed, 59 injured, um, but he was a homeless man. And, and he saw um, what had happened. He heard what had happened. He was minding his own business. 
And here's what he says, just because I'm homeless doesn't mean that I haven't got a heart. I was just instinct to go and help. It was a lot of children with blood all over them, crying and screaming. It had to be done. You had to help. If you didn't help, I wouldn't be able to live with myself for walking away and leaving kids like that. There's a compassion for people who are suffering, especially if there's the possibility of relief. Here they are, exercising a compassionate faith. There's a a committed faith that the crowds don't stop them. They don't say, oh, it's too many people, we'll go home, come back another day. No, they they find some way to, to get their friend there as a cooperating faith. I don't know if you've ever carried someone on a mat before. Um... It's really, really hard to do. So someone had to take charge. Someone had to say, this is where we're going. They had to coordinate together. There was a cooperation that took place there. And of course, there was a sacrificial faith. They they gave up their time. They gave up their energy, even possibly their resources, thinking, all right, we're going to break a roof open. That means that someone's going to have to pay for this. I don't know. Look at verse 4. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And these roofs were typically flat, and uh, they had cross beams and stuff, and then dirt was kind of thatched, and then some dirt on top. And then usually, like, some kind of a grass was put on top of that. Uh, You know, who would fix it once it was torn open? But see, all these questions are just kind of, like, peripheral because there's some bigger priority going on here, okay? Um, So their faith was, was in Jesus, the miracle worker, but not Jesus the Messiah. But friends, there's an aspect of what they're doing that, that, that we also can do that is a, a dynamic of faith, and it's called vicarious faith. Now, what is, what is vicarious faith? It simply is a faith that is exercised by you or by me on behalf of others. And it is something that we're commanded to do. When we're praying for other people, we are praying for them by faith. We can also minister the word by faith. So we open the word, we share the word, I preach the word, we teach the word, and we do it trusting that God is going to work his will through that medium. But we also do good works by faith. But hear this, our faith cannot save. And one of the, one of the mistakes that we make is that we come to a passage like this and say, ah, this is a, a model for how to do ministry that it was their faith that saved this man. No, 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 no. Jesus is describing their behavior as faith, but their faith wasn't the mechanism for their conversion. You understand the difference? And we pray by faith, but it's always all of Christ. Salvation is always him, but we're commanded to live and to act by faith, and so God accomplishes his purposes and his will by, by faithful brothers and sisters, children of God who are wanting to honor him, but he also accomplishes his will through people who are being disobedient. It's, it's all of God, but he calls us as his children to exercise faith. So we've seen man's dire condition. We've seen these, these faithful friends who bring their friend who's paralytic to Jesus but then we find out what man's real need ultimately is. As Jesus is teaching, and he is interrupted once again, just like he was before in the synagogue a few weeks earlier, 
I'm sure the people just stopped and they all kind of looked around and looked up to the roof and what's going to happen now? What's this miracle worker going to say? And is he going to get upset? Is there going to be a conflict? What's, you know, what's going to take place here? And as the four men lower their friend right in front of Jesus, the crowd, including the scribes, who are now a little dusty from the broken roof, are looking, wondering what he'll do next. And Mark tells us, verse five, and when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. Now, I just, I wanna bring some clarity here. One of the questions in the text here is this. Is the word when identifying the beginning or the, the reason for the declaration Son, your sins are forgiven. In other words, their faith somehow was the mechanism, and I would say no, that, that, that this idea of when is, is more talking about the timing. When Jesus observes it, when he saw their faith, and when he comes to that conclusion, he's like, okay, this is time now for a lesson. This is time for something to take place, and this man is going to be this object lesson for all who are here to see that I am the son of man who has the authority to forgive sin. As Jesus says those words, son, your sins are forgiven, there must have been a hush in the room. I mean, who, who even says that kind of stuff? For people, that's just that's kind of a blasphemy. What do those words mean to the paralytic? Well, certainly the paralytic might be under that kind of... Jewish Old Testament mindset that says, well, your sin is, your, 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 your sickness, your paralyzing condition is a result of sin. That's a possibility. But more than likely, he's thinking to himself, all right, my friend's brought me all this way, and he says your sins are forgiven. All right, I'm still laying on this mat. I still can't move. And, and the friends who are peering down now through the hole in the roof must be thinking the same things. We spent all this time, we worked together like this, we exercised faith, and here this miracle worker says your sins are forgiven? I mean, really? And what do the words mean to the scribes? Well, Mark's gonna tell us here. As we continue on, uh, we wanna see now not only man's total inability, but also Christ's full authority. See, this, 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 this story is not so much about the paralytic as it is about who Jesus is. And we just need to make sure we, we, we see the word of God through that lens. It doesn't mean that the paralytic isn't important. He is very important in the story, but Jesus is the one who is on display in this gospel. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ, okay? Now, some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? It's interesting to me, in this, in this paragraph, in this text, that the only time that the actual scribes say anything is when they're connected with everyone else at the end. This is all Jesus perceiving in his heart what they are thinking in their heart. But it's clear that he is right in his thinking. So these men who are responsible uh, to care for their fellow Jews because they're part of the flock of God are just sitting there and they begin to reason in their hearts. Matthew's account gives us a little bit more clarity by telling us that their reasoning was evil. 
In other words, they, they were not genuinely open to the facts or the evidence that is before them. They had come with an agenda, a personal agenda that was different from God's. But notice, their theology is right. Only God can forgive sins. Yep. Are you getting the point? Right? That's, that's what's going on here. Jesus is saying, are you getting the point? Their theology was right, but their logic is faulty because they're not willing to conclude that Jesus was God in the flesh performing these miracles. So they concluded that what he was doing was blasphemy. I mean, this is, this is going downhill pretty fast. It's no small thing to be accused of blasphemy. Now, they haven't said it yet. Now, this is what they're thinking. You ever been in a situation where you're talking to someone and you're like, I know exactly what they're thinking. You're reading body language and all that kind of stuff. Now, you could be wrong. I understand that. We're not Jesus. Um, but, you know, sometimes these things are pretty well on display. And notice verse 8, and immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your heart? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, raise up your bed and walk? Now, friends, this is not an easy text of Scripture to unpack and to come to a conclusion about, because we think of it a little differently, we actually would come to this and we would say, well, of course, it's, it's easier to say your sins are forgiven because I can just say it, but yeah, there's no, how do, you, how do you back that up? How do you find out whether that is true or not, right? It's kind of like when people come to you and say, it's God's will that I should do X, Y, and Z. Well, you throw out the God's will thing. I guess I have to say it's true, but how do I know that it's God's will? You test it by a lot of different things to come to that conclusion. Now, he had declared that this man's sins were forgiven, and that was easy for him to say. Any, any charlatan can come into town and declare that someone's sins are forgiven. So what is easier, to say your sins are forgiven or to get up and walk? We would say it's easier to say your sins are forgiven, or you get up and walk, because that can be measured. It's easier to say that. Get up and walk, and you can see the evidence of that. But the reality is, it's harder to say your sins are forgiven because to say your sins are forgiven places Jesus now in an antagonistic position with this religious elite. It's no wonder this conflict is beginning here because by saying what he's saying, he's claiming to be divine. That's what's going on here. It is not an easy thing to say, your sins are forgiven. Now, you can just imagine the scene. The atmosphere is electrifying. It's tense. The crowd stands silently listening to Jesus' words and looking at the scribes who are fumbling in their seats and dusting the dirt off of their beards and garments and the paralytic is sitting there motionless on his bed and four sweaty heads are looking down through the broken roof. And Jesus speaks again, and he's going to seal his own fate by his words, purposefully, deliberately, because this is what he has come to do. We've seen that Christ's authority 
has been questioned. That's what we just looked at. But now we want to see that Christ's authority is demonstrated. Jesus had taught with authority in the synagogue. He's cast out demons with authority. He's healed with authority. And here was what we have in verse 10. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, you just wonder how he's doing that. He's speaking to the scribes, right? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins, he says to the paralytic, get up and walk. All right? Rise, pick up your bed, go home. Now, there must have been a few seconds of silence in the room. Everyone contemplating the words that he had spoken. Here is the proof of his power to forgive. Would the paralyzed man get up? Or would he still lay there on the mat? Jesus had forgiven his sins, but he was still paralyzed. Now with everyone watching him, the paralytic had a choice. Either he was going to believe, or he was going to Reject. Either he was going to believe that Jesus' words were a mockery against God or that they were the very words of God. Now he came with his friends by faith. He probably was saying, okay, this is great. People are getting healed. Maybe I can too. But now his faith, because his sin has been forgiven, would have to act. And faith and action, friends, go together. So what happened? This is the moment of truth. Without faith, it is impossible to please God, the scripture says. So faith is is knowing that Jesus is willing and that he's able to save and that our lives show that we believe by our actions. Without such faith, faith is dead. Actions have to accompany faith. You can say all you want about what you believe in particular, what, what, what you believe in Jesus, but if, if you're not willing to act on your belief, your faith is dead, right? The demons believe, but what do they do? They tremble, right? Some believe that Christ is the Messiah, but they reject. So it says, verse 12, and he arose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all so that all were amazed and glorified God, saying, We never saw anything like this. Now friends, this is a a demonstration of who Jesus is for all to see. Jesus was no charlatan this day. Men don't worship God when they see a conjurer do tricks. They clap. They cheer, they applaud, but no one is laughing. No one is applauding. Everyone is stunned and amazed at the demonstration of this one who identifies himself as the Son of Man. Now, friends, not only is Christ's authority questioned and demonstrated, but there is an aspect where Christ's authority is 
applied. And we want to think about this now in the context of, of what we've seen in the, in the New Testament developed. In fact, a few, if you just went back in, from Mark's gospel to the end of Matthew's gospel, you'll notice that, first of all, the, the, the authority here is a key issue to Christ. Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20 says this, and Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. In other words, the authority has been given to me, but now I'm commissioning you to carry out ministry with that same authority. Now, you don't have the same authority like Jesus in every way because he's God, but we know the apostles exercised authority and also for a season had the ability to perform miracles to authenticate the truth of the gospel they were preaching. And here at the beginning of Mark's gospel, the people recognize his authority when Jesus teaches in the synagogue. Look at chapter, chapter one, verse 22. And when they were, uh, they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. In other words, he believed what he was saying. He spoke it with authority. The scribes just talked about it. And this is because Jesus had been given direct authority by the Father at his baptism. He is anointed by the Father as the Messiah, as the Son of God. And so not only is, is this authority a key issue for Jesus, but it is also an authority that is applied to anyone who stands in the position as a preacher or a proclaimer of the truth of God. I, as a pastor, I, as someone who is a pastor teacher, carry out this authority. I don't have authority, but I point everyone to the authority that God has given us. I don't stand over the word of God and say, well, well we're going to interpret it this way. We're going to see it this way. No, we stand under the word of God and we say, what does it say? And what do people need to, to see from this text that is true? It is the authority, and that authority comes from Christ. And every pastor standing before you, should be humbled by that authority and recognize that what they are to say is not their own thoughts, but to articulate God's thoughts carefully and clearly to God's people. And so, friends, we must pray, whether it's me, our elders, anyone who's standing up here, the, 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 the churches that we partner with, we need to pray for those pastors to preach with authority the word of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, they don't just need education. Education is important. They don't just need gifts. This whole thing of, well, he's a good communicator just betrays the authority of the word of God. But there needs to be some good communication skills. They need, ultimately, conviction and the authority of God on their lives. And friends, there's nothing so important as authority in their preaching. What kind of preaching is preaching if there is no authority connected to it? Someone says, thus says the Lord. This is God's word. This is what he says. Go home and look at it yourself. Study it. Find out what it says. Be a Berean. Let him impact your life. That should be coming out. That should be present. So pastors are not to simply give talks or devotions. 
They're ministering, proclaiming, and exhorting the very heart of God to mankind. Spurgeon says it this way, there is a somewhat in preaching whereby you know if a man has it or if he doesn't have it. And that somewhat, friends, is this conviction and authority that this is what God says. Now, just if you have your bulletin, just I want you to notice what our church's mission statement is. And we, we, we formulated the mission statement without looking at this text, but I think this text speaks to that. It says, it is our desire at Gateway Bible Church to glorify God by building a community of believers who are actively committed to knowing, applying, and proclaiming the word of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ. My question to you is this. Are you actively committed to knowing applying and proclaiming the word of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what we said we're here to do. Are we doing it? Now, we're gonna try from our end, but are you, as a, as a participant in our church, as a member of our church, are you actively pursuing this agenda? There's a call here. There's a, there's a pressure here to do that. Now, as we continue, my, my third point is really a reflection of the whole text. We've seen man's uh, total inability. We've seen Christ's full authority. But now, we want to understand ministry's ultimate priority. And I'm going to be repeating myself a little bit, but you'll understand where I'm going with this. In this passage, and so far as we've looked in Mark's gospel, the, the thing we want to understand is this. The priority of preaching over the miraculous. Now that preaching can be defined as, as Jesus teaching or him speaking the word, all right? We might say to ourselves, oh that, oh, that Jesus would simply perform a miracle that would have convinced these people of the authenticity of the gospel and the reality of himself. Oh, that we would have that. But Jesus has already answered that question. You guys remember the story of the rich man and Lazarus? Rich man, obviously, has a beautiful mansion, and there's a, there's a, there's a poor beggar that's sitting at his gate, and the rich man dies, and he goes to Hades, and, which is hell, and he says to Father Abraham, Father Abraham, please send an angel to one of my brothers so that one of my brothers would believe. And here's the response that he gets back. From heaven, though someone rise from the dead and go tell him, yet he will not believe if he has not believed Moses and the prophets. He will not be impressed by someone who rises from the dead. You see where they're going. You see what Jesus is saying in telling this story. So keep that in mind, friends, when you encounter those who would say that what our generation needs is more signs and wonders. Because even if you get the ultimate sign, the resurrection, remember that one? It will not convince those who have not listened to Moses and the prophets. And add to that, we have now the record of the New Testament. We have the greatest miracle around to accompany and to authenticate, authenticate Christ and the gospel. So 
we find ourselves going back to the same priority again and again. Jesus' priority, as we've been unfolding Mark's gospel, is preaching of the miraculous. Chapter one, verse 14, he came proclaiming the good news of God. Verse 21, he was in the synagogue teaching with authority. Verse 38, everyone is looking for you, is what the disciples were saying, because he was a miracle worker. He was popular, let's get back to doing this. And he says, let us go somewhere else that I may preach, for that is what I've come to do. And then in chapter two, Jesus is preaching the word. Then after this text, he began to teach them. The priority of preaching is throughout the ministry of Jesus. Now you say, well, you're just saying that because you're a pastor. It's just, you're just being self-serving. Listen, all I'm doing is telling you what the scripture says. Go look for it yourself. And sadly, too many in the church will go on their way without taking seriously the faithful exposition and proclamation of the word of God. They'll, they'll ignore it, they'll, they'll fill it with anything else. Now we kind of go through waves in American Christian culture and there was a wave when it was just all about worship, worship, worship and all different things and oh, by the way, the pastor gets up and he has 15 minutes. I don't know what you can do in 15 minutes. You know, you know I'm not even started until about half an hour in because you gotta set everything up because the word of God is rich. It's powerful. It's packed with truth. We don't just throw little seeds of stuff out there and say, oh, I did my thing. But we had great worship today. Nothing against the praise of God's people lifting up to him. But that is, that is not, I'm not saying it's, it's, it's unnecessary. It is, it is just simply secondary to the proclamation of the word. In fact, the a well-known mega-pastor said this, preaching through a book of the Bible is for lazy pastors. Well, if that's lazy, I, I need to take some time off because <laughs> and we must see people as hungry and unhealthy and we must not leave them without the feeding of the word of God and, and giving them the medicine of the gospel. And I re- recently um, heard a preacher from a seeker-sensitive church say the following. You know, I have some, some people that say to me as they leave the church, in other words, they're no longer gonna con- stay at the church, pastor, we, we are just not getting fed here. He says, it just about drives me crazy. The only people who need to be fed are babies and the elderly. Adults can feed themselves. I was like, what? Timothy, preach the word. Be instant, in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering when you're speaking to babies and the elderly. Everyone else, let them fend for themselves. Is that what it says? Absolutely not. The role of a pastor who is a shepherd, shepherds take the sheep to green pastures where they can feed and be nourished, and in that analogy, by God's truth. Now, this also happened in the early church the apostles were just so burdened down with taking care of social ministry. They were, because they loved people. And so they called on the church there, listen, can you raise up some deacons? 
who can take care of the, these, these social tasks so that we can commit ourselves to prayer and the study of the word. And they raised up deacons who would take care of feeding the widows, tending to the tables, and other things that were going on so that the apostles could give themselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. And friends, if, if there's something that we could just, just post on, on every pulpit across our nation, is that on that pulpit it would say, Pastor, be faithful to prayer and the preaching of the word as your priority. Uh, it would change our nation. The priority of preaching of the miraculous. By the way, it doesn't mean that we don't believe that God can do incredible things, that he can answer prayer, and he does. Okay? But we're not conjuring up some miraculous thing during our times together, right? Secondly, the priority of the spiritual over the physical. When, he, when Jesus saw their faith, he said, your sins are forgiven to the paralytic. And Jesus, in saying this, the thing that I came for, the thing that is most important in your life is not your sickness, is not your paralysis, it is your sin. See, sickness has temporary implications. Sin has eternal implications. You've heard people say, hey, how you doing? Oh, I'm doing well. Oh, that's really, really good. As long as you have your health, that's all that matters. I know you had that conversation with people. Really? Is that all that matters? Is that what we really believe? Is it better to have a healthy body but a, a sick soul? Or is it better to have a, a sick body but the confidence that your soul is healed by the gospel? And I know what you're saying. Why can't we have both? <laughs> well, you can maybe for a season. Because your body is always in the process of degeneration. Your body was birthed to die. And you might have good health now. I mean, you might be going to the gym. You know, you got a 15 pack as opposed to a keg. You know what I'm talking about, right? <laughs> it's gonna be gone one day. I mean, even Arnold Schwarzenegger, you know, he's got a keg now, okay? Just saying. But what's more important than that is your position and your standing with Christ because of his healing gospel. Now, the apostle John connects the two in speaking a greeting to his friend, Gaius. This is 3 John 2. He says, I pray that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. <laughs> I mean, we're concerned about people's health. It's, it's right to be concerned about that. Don't, don't get me wrong. It's not saying that what's going on in your body is, is unimportant. And that's why Jesus was compassion. That's why Jesus was healing. He was casting out demons. That's why he calls for us to, to pray for the sick because he cares about those things, but those are always secondary to the spiritual. Let's bring this down to a close. A couple of concluding thoughts. Number one, let's just reflect on the condition of man. What would it look like if our physical bodies were a reflection of our spiritual condition? 
Just ponder that thought. Would you want to look in the mirror? Would we see our condition more clearly? Would we be shocked? I thought I was pretty healthy. Now, I want to be careful here. Because the reality is, if we, if we took that analogy, we would be the perfect specimen if it was based on our position with Christ. Because we are clothed in his righteousness. But what I'm getting at here is to those who are believers who are supposed to be pursuing holiness, pursuing Christ-likeness, what would you see in the mirror? What would be there? What would you, what would you need to be working on? You know, what would your spiritual paleo diet look like? What would your spiritual calories be? What, what, what kind of intake do you need every day in order to maintain that wonderful physique? It's a consideration. How would others see you? <laughs> ah! All right. The facade of cultural Christianity's costumes would be removed and we would see each other for who we really are. Or we, we have it all together, so to speak, would be turned into my together is hanging together by a gospel thread. See, would we be truly able to see ourselves, our spiritual selves, or the bird that is up on the roof, or a squirrel? There's a battle going on up there. What is your condition, friends? And and I just wanna home in a little bit on the Son of Man. The Son of Man, only he, friends, has the authority to forgive sin. Jesus is being put on display here. We, we, we get sidetracked. We think that the, the paralyzed man is being put on display. He, he's there. He's, Christ is using him to declare who he is to those around him. He is the fulfillment of this Old Testament son of man. Come down. And he's demonstrating that he has authority to forgive sin. And right now, he has ascended, sitting at the right hand of the Father. And here's what we've learned so far. The condition of man is is that he's ensnared by the devil and salvation brings eternal deliverance. He's debilitated by disease and salvation brings eternal wholeness. He's tainted by sin throughout, and salvation brings eternal cleansing. But here we find that he is paralyzed and unable to pursue Christ, and salvation breathes new eternal life that is the resurrection life that enables him to get up and to walk, which is what we picture when we go through the waters of baptism. This is what Jesus does. He takes someone who can't walk, breathes in new life, so they can, in a spiritual sense. 
This only comes through Christ. It only comes through the gospel. And it only comes from the Son of Man who came down and is now seated at the right hand of the Father. Lord, help us today to be amazed like this crowd, to be shocked and in awe that you so clearly and carefully and purposely have declared yourself to be the Son of God by identifying yourself as the Son of Man. And in doing so, Lord, showing us that you are the one who has the authority to forgive sins. And Lord, we who are your children today have the the assurance and the confidence that though our bodies are failing, that if we have you as our savior, we are secure, we, we are right, we have what truly matters. We have you, we have this new life, and you have brought about that change. And Lord, for those who may be struggling, trying to figure this Christianity thing out, there's a lot of baggage that the world brings and Christians are this and Christians are that. Lord, you know that the reason the world hates us is because it hated you. And may we not be on the wrong side, not of history, but of eternity. Because that decision and that reality is the most important one. Oh Lord, we need you today. Give us humility before you. Give us joy because of the fact that you are the Son of God, the Son of Man. Help us, Lord, to live out of that that new life by faith. Come running to you. Point others to you. Rejoicing in what you have done in giving us, Lord, life and life that is abundant. Would you be glorified today, we ask in your name. Amen.